And I said, you know what, I'm going to do this plant-based thing. And I moved out of, out of rehab after 37 days, checked into sober living where I adopted a plant-based diet. And within four months, my diabetes, my heart disease, my erectile dysfunction was completely reversed. Within 10 months, I had lost over hundred pounds. And within a year, I was off of every single medication I was put on in rehab, including the antidepressants, the mood stabilizers, the sleeping medications, the anxiety medications, and the ADHD medications. You know, people want to say that, you know, lifestyle change, recovery, sobriety is a, is a becoming of a new version of yourself. What I really believe it to be is a practice in remembering. You know, it's a practice of remembering who I've always been before somebody else taught me differently. It's a practice in remembering who we are before the world got its hands on us. That was Adam Sad, and I'm your host, Christina. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in um, this week. And this one, I cannot wait to share this conversation with you. This one really, really touched my heart. Adam Sad is a return guest. Uh, he was here with us in February of 2019. It's episode 30 if you wanted to go and hear his full story. But this human is incredible. At some point, he was weighing nearly 350 pounds and struggling with multiple addictions, serious chronic disease, mental health disorders. And uh, at some point, point that he actually attempted uh, suicide by drug overdose and he checked himself into the rehab and with the help of his parents and a plant-based diet he began the journey that led to a remarkable recovery a recovery that he talks about um, in in this podcast sharing his story Today, Adam is an absolute beacon of light. Uh, he is a diabetes and food addiction coach for Mastering Diabetes. Uh, that's actually how he, we met. Robbie Barbero from Mastering Diabetes is the one who suggested I interview him first time around, and I'm very grateful for the introduction. And uh, he is also the founder of uh, Plan Based for Positive Change. Uh, it's a really cool nonprofit that is dedicated to advancing the research of diet and mental health um, and addiction and is running their very first research study to investigate the effects of a nutrient-dense food intervention for addiction recovery. This is just a fascinating concept, but at the same time, baffling that nobody has done it before and I'm so grateful that Adam is working on it. We we talk a lot about his work. He definitely still shares a lot of his story in this one. He talks about his addiction but also how he understands addiction reflecting back on his journey and the journey of the many people that he worked with um, after his and through his own recovery. And then we also talk about his uh, study that that the infinite study that I mentioned with the effects of plant-based nutrition on building resilience in early uh, addiction recovery. It is, it is just a fascinating and heartfelt episode, easily uh, one of my favorite conversations I had on the podcast so far. So I hope that just gives you enough context and, and hopefully motivation to listen to it. But I'm very, very privileged and excited that Adam was able to give me some of his time. I want to encourage you to consider donating to Adam's study. I will include the, his GoFundMe uh, link to this campaign. And again, you'll hear more about study, but I just want to emphasize how important it is to understand uh, from the evidence perspective of how plant-based nutrition works and have um, 
data that you, that can back up claims like this, uh, and and this is your opportunity to to play a small part uh, in a potentially humongous impact on the way that we look at addiction and heal from addiction as society. And I also encourage you to check out his Plum Based for Positive Change nonprofit. It's Plum Based for Positive Change and I'll include the link in um, in show notes. But he's just amazing. Adam said, follow him up on social, hit him up, let him know and let me know how you like this episode. I also want to put a plug in for your preparation for the gift given season, whatever holidays you do or do not celebrate, I encourage you to support your local businesses, especially the ones who are making things in a kind way without hurting any other sentient beings. And uh, some of my favorite businesses that I'd like to highlight this week is, uh, of course, my dear friend, Jamie with her company Jamie's Cookie Dough. It's based here in Atlanta and I'm sure if you live here in Atlanta, I'm sure you know her. Uh, She's the, the person behind the amazing cookies, the cream pies, the brownies. But uh, she also ships nationwide, if you didn't know about that. So if you wanted to send a box of cookies to your family member or a person that you love, you can definitely order from her. You can go to Jamie's Cookie uh, cookiedough.com so jamiescookiedough.com and she's offering both nationwide shipping and local delivery and you can choose from the regular items or holiday sample boxes with wide variety of flavors also available and gluten friendly and uh, her logo is um, always vegan never compromised so you can be safe that the cookies are amazingly delicious but also free of cruelty so check her out and other great ideas for holiday gift giving season I love are supporting your local farm sanctuaries um, so check out farm of the free or the full for the full circle farm sanctuary they have different um, sh- uh, t-shirts and different gifts available that you can purchase or you can just make a donation and support one of their residents one of their happy happy residents who live fulfilling and full life um, in those spaces uh, and are able to fully express themselves so just wanted to put this plug in uh, and I hope whatever you're doing this season is doing that you're doing it for your own good uh, and you're being gentle to yourself but also uh, kind and gentle to others Um, I know holiday season is is exciting um, but at the same time sometimes it's also challenging and, and full of tension and Family is wonderful, but they also tend to uh, press our buttons sometimes. So I just hope uh, that you're kind to yourself, you're kind to your family, and you remember the big picture, the fact that that you do have a family uh, and how amazing it is to, to have the loved ones in your life, regardless of what politics they choose to follow, where they get their news or what their food preferences are or um, what they wear today or whatever. So I hope you uh, find the sense of gratitude. I hope you take care of yourself and uh, happy holidays. I'm sure I'll talk to you again soon. Welcome to another episode of Follow Your Kind podcast. Today we have another amazing guest, Adam Saad. I'm privileged to have him back on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Hi, Adam. Hey, how are you? I'm glad to be back. Thank you so uh, much for joining. It's always Um, a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, we were just talking how since our last conversation, it seems like there's been a lot of progress in in both of our lives. So I'm really, really excited to hear some of the updates with the, the amazing projects that you're working on today. 
Yeah, and congratulations on your MPH. So yes. that's, that's amazing. <laughs> so fantastic. Yeah, no, let's get into it. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, well, um, maybe to start and to ground us, um, I know some of you may have heard Adam's story already, but for, for the listeners who are new to you, if you don't mind, may, you, may we revisit your story and can you talk about what led you to the, to the path of what you do today, plant-based addiction, um, studying loneliness and how plant-based nutrition and health lifestyle overall can help us build resilience. What brought you to this path? Yeah, yeah. so... Um... August. Uh, well, so we'll start, you know, I grew up in Texas um, and uh, I was, I'm, I'm a seventh generation Texan and a Jew. And I grew up eating the diet of both cultures, which neither, which are famously healthy. Um, and I had, you know, I, I was raised in a, in a wonderfully loving home with amazing parents, a twin brother and a little sister. And I grew up in a neighborhood with lots of friends, but, you know, with, with the best of intentions, you know, I had parents that were um, critical of the way that I looked. Uh, I didn't know it at the time that I was overweight. Um, but, you know, I started around age 10. I would get these comments. My parents would ask me, you know, why I already have love handles and things like that. And, you know, I'm 10 years old. I, I don't even know what love handles are. I don't know how you get them. I wasn't, I certainly wasn't buying the food or making the meals or, you know, anything. And so, I went, I remember feeling ashamed uh, of, because, you know, I asked my dad, I said, you know, what do you mean? What are love handles? And he pointed to my body and explained it to me. And I looked at him and I said, well, you kind of have them. And he said, you know, well, well, I'm 40. And I was like, I went from completely accepting and loving my body without condition to within one second, believing that there were conditions to which I could and could not accept and love myself. And that made me afraid because now I was worried that there were other conditions that I had to meet in order to be acceptable to the world and to the people that loved me and to my friends and that I didn't know what these conditions were. And I didn't know if I was failing to meet them before I was meeting them. Or... And so all of a sudden there was this shift in my acceptance of myself and the, the way that I fit into things. And, and it had a real profound effect on me. And I remember also at this about, about the same time being diagnosed with ADHD and that being another incident in my life that asked me to accept the narrative of somebody else's view of what was okay to be human. You know, that there was a broken part in me and that, you know, the world doesn't accept and doesn't appreciate this broken part of me and that the plan is to fix it with a pill. It was Ritalin at the time. And that, that instilled this belief that, okay, there are, I'm going to continue to discover things about myself that aren't okay. And when I do that, I have to find a way, a, a substance or a behavior outside of myself to either hide or fix these broken parts that I'm going to continue to discover so that I can meet the world's expectations in conditions of what it is to be acceptable and lovable as a human being. And in high school, my prescription for Ritalin became Adderall and we just moved to Austin from Houston. So I didn't have a lot of friends. And I remember that I got invited to a party my freshman year of high school. And I, I did find out eventually before the party even started that the reason I got invited was because people knew that I had Adderall. Yeah. And so they wanted me to bring it with me to the party which I did, of course, because like I said, I didn't have any friends. 
And I wanted to feel valued. I wanted to be of value to other people. I wanted to be the person that was able to offer something to other people that they couldn't get anywhere else so that I could be wanted. And I can remember using it as a recreational drug for the first time and feeling this unbelievable feeling of success that I had finally figured out how to fix all of these broken parts in me that you know, I, I didn't have a lot of friends. Great. Well, having Adderall got me friends. Um, I was, I was a little shy because I didn't know a lot of people when I was on Adderall, I had unbelievable confidence and I had boundless energy and I could, everything became interesting no matter what it was. And so I was able to make friends really easily, like engage in conversation, be confident. And I liked the feeling of having this unbelievable amount of energy and this, this, ability to just go, 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 go. And I was a little bit overweight as a freshman in high school and Adderall is an amphetamine. I mean, it's, that's what it is. It's medically pure amphetamine. And so my hunger drive went away. I, I got another problem solved. My relationship with my dad was, was constantly um, tense because I didn't have very good study habits. Well, if I'm on enough Adderall, that problem is solved as well. So every single thing that I thought was a broken part of me was immediately repaired. It seemed like it was the greatest solution I'd ever experienced, I'd ever found in my life. And I just figured, you know, this is it. This, I found my solution to feeling complete in the world and it worked. And I was hooked to that feeling. I was hooked to what it did for me. You know, it wasn't about the substance itself. The substance was just the first thing that I found that was so incredibly successful at giving me this belief and this feeling of being complete. And it worked for me until it didn't, until more was never enough and never enough was my constant concern. It was, you know, how much do I have left? How, how long will it last? Where will I get more? How much will it cost? Where will I get the money to pay for it? I saw these concerns becoming more and more and more the most important things in my life as my life began to spin out of control and I ended up dropping out of college. Um, I ended up falling into the life of a criminal drug addict where I was buying and selling drugs on the street. I was stealing from people. I would scam anybody for anything so that I could get what I needed for myself. And I began to isolate more and more and more. Um, I was treating my family like garbage. I would, you know, the only time I would see them is to blame them for everything that was wrong in my life or to ask them for money so that I can continue to buy drugs on the street. And as, as I became more and more depressed and more anxious and more angry at life and myself and the world, I became further and further disconnected from all of these meaningful bonds that gave me the experience of being alive. And I was using so much Adderall at the time that I would run out. And fast food became a solution for me to feel numb to the, the feeling of being present as my authentic self. Um, and it got you know really out of control. When I say I was using a lot of Adderall, the average prescription for Adderall is about 10 milligrams a day. I was doing on a minimum of 450 milligrams in a 24 hour period. And there were days where I would do a thousand milligrams. Um, I was eating about 5,000 calories of fast food a day for about a week straight. And then I'd do drugs for two weeks straight. And then I'd do the fast food for a week and I'd do the drugs. And it was just this, and in order to do both of those things, I had to do really awful things to people and to myself in order to continue this cycle of consistent 
self-abuse that forced me to hate my life more, that forced me to need to escape my life more, that forced me to do things to get the what I needed to escape my life. And it was just this really painful existence. And on August 21st of 2012, you know, my dad had had tried to help me take charge of my life. He sent me to go to a week-long event hosted by Rip Esselstyn, who is the founder of the Engine 2 diet, the, the, the Plant Strong, which is now called Plant Strong. He's the executive producer of the Game Changers. He's part of the Forks Over Knives. And, you know, the only reason I went was that I knew that if I said, if I did this, I could get my dad to keep giving me money. And at the time, I, went, I wanted to have nothing to do with it. As much as it did speak to me and as much as it made sense, I wasn't willing and I wasn't ready to give up what was allowing me to escape a life that was too painful a place to be. And on August 21st of 2012, I was 350 pounds, um, living hurt physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, I had wounds, scratches on my legs that were getting infected. They wouldn't heal for reasons I, I didn't understand. Uh, I, I probably hadn't spoken to my dad in months and um, I hadn't spoken to my sister in a year. Um, and you know, I just figured that I had been trying for probably about a year at that point to just hate myself enough and hate my life enough. I, that was my goal. If I could just be so damn miserable and hate everything about me to the point to where finally I'd want to do something about it. And it just made me feel further and further disconnected from what it is to be meaningfully alive. And so I attempted suicide. Um, I, I attempted suicide by, by, um, or I'm sorry, the, the, the term is suicided, um, by drug overdose. We don't say attempt anymore because attempt, uh, makes the assumption that I'm doing something wrong, that I'm committing a crime. Um, so the, for those of you out there, the term is suicided. Um, and, uh, I can remember the feeling of the overdose. And I felt like I got stabbed on the side and I, I like buckled over. And you know how when you stand up sometimes, if you haven't eaten in a while and you get that lightheaded feeling, the black sort of, you see these like black come in from the sides. I saw that happen and then I saw it close. And it was, it was as if the universe was just asking that I no longer be a part of it. And I woke up a few hours later in a puddle of vomit in a pile of fast food garbage surrounded by empty pill bottles um, and surrounded and I was completely alone, completely disconnected from everyone and everything that ever meant anything to me. And not because they didn't want to be there for me, but because I had done everything in my power to make sure that they couldn't. And I remember this feeling of immense relief, which at first I, I thought was odd because I thought my goal was to end my life. And what it asked me to consider was what really took place and what the reality of suicide is, is that it is not an attempt to end someone's life. This is an attempt to end someone's pain. And the reason that I was feeling relieved was because even though I was in that much pain, and even though I knew that day was going to be painful, 
there was still something about myself and my life that was so meaningful. There was something about myself and my life and the world that I lived in that was, that I loved enough that I still wanted to be part of all of it. I still, I wanted one more day of it. And I picked up the phone. I called my parents and I asked for help and I checked into rehab where I was diagnosed with type two diabetes and high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, and attention deficit disorder. And, you know, they put me on a cabinet's worth of medication for life. It was like 15 meds. And um, I was asked to believe this narrative that this doctor was, was telling me is that this is what I am. You know, that I am diabetic. I am, you know, mentally ill. I am, you know, uh, I, 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 I'm all of these things and that I will be on these medicines for life because I am this. And I just remember, I was like, you know what? My whole life, every pain I've ever felt was because I believed somebody else's bullshit story about who I was supposed to be and how I was supposed to live my life in order to feel acceptable. And I know I just spent probably about a year and a half before that, I was at that retreat with Rip and I heard the greatest of luminary thought leaders tell me the exact opposite. That the only reason I was there is because there's nothing wrong with me. Because my body is doing exactly what it was supposed to do. That is a predictable response to the way that I was living my life. That if anything, it's the most healthy and most reasonable response my body could have given how I was living my life. And I said, you know what? I don't really understand this emotional and psychological stuff. I don't know what, I didn't know what bipolar disorder was. And to be clear and to clarify it, I am not bipolar one or two. It was a chemically induced state of uh, emotional dysregulation that presents like bipolar. And a lot of people who enter drug re uh, recovery are misdiagnosed. We're not misdiagnosed. They're diagnosed with things as a result of the chemical imbalance that happens as a result of being so dysregulated from drugs. And so a lot of times you're diagnosed with things, you're put on medication and it turns out that's not what's happening. But so in my case, I, I was diagnosed as bipolar. I was, I am not bipolar, but that's the situation. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do this plant-based thing. And I moved out of, out of rehab after 37 days, checked into sober living where I adopted a plant-based diet. And within four months, my diabetes, my heart disease, my erectile dysfunction was completely reversed. Within 10 months, I had lost over 100 pounds. And within a year, I was off of every single medication I was put on in rehab, including the antidepressants, the mood stabilizers, the sleeping medications, the anxiety medications, and the ADHD medications. And, you know, I had this unbelievable transformation. You know, people want to say that, you know, lifestyle change, recovery, sobriety is a is a becoming of a new version of yourself and i just call complete bullshit to that i didn't enter this world like that you know what what i really believe it to be is a practice in remembering you know it's a practice of remembering who i've always been before somebody else taught me differently before something else got me to believe some bullshit story about who they think i am and what i'm supposed to be it's a practice in remembering who we are before the world got its hands on us. And uh, I've lost about 180 pounds as of now. I'm eight years in recovery and I celebrated eight years on, in September. So congratulations. Thank you. So, you know, for, if, if you guys want to hear the full story, you can go listen to the earlier episode, but I know we have a lot of stuff we want to talk about. That's the, that's the short version. 
so yeah yeah that's that's such an amazing story i'm i'm sorry i'm still crying but uh it's uh i i feel um it it kind of hurts me to ask you to retell the story because i know you always get connected with the past you don't just say the words again you actually mm. tell the story authentically which i really really appreciate but i also imagine it's really hard to relive this every time that you tell the story so i'm sorry for asking you but no don't you apologize you know one of the things that i love about being human is that we feel and we feel really deeply and you know i wouldn't i wouldn't ask myself to miss a moment of feeling something And so I, I consider it a, a, a great, a, you know, I consider myself very grateful that I'm capable of and willing to go there. You know, human beings are feeling, are feeling creatures. This is what we do. And it's the reason why you're crying is because the human experience of feeling is so beautiful that it doesn't even matter if your feelings or not. Yeah. You know? And so you can live through what I've gone through simply by listening and, and hearing my emotions because you're human to some degree you've experienced it. You know, the, 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 the part of me that felt alone in that room is validated by the truth that I wasn't alone in what I was feeling because right now you are emotional listening to what I have to say. Yeah. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being so vulnerable. And, and Ditto, I, I love uh, what Sarah Blakely says that the more we experience, the more we have to offer others. So that's mm -hmm. very much in line to what you said. Um, Adam, and I, I, again, you have a beautiful story and I encourage listeners to go to the previous list, uh, episode to, to listen uh, the full story of it. But I do want to transition into your work today. Um, and before we go into the infinity study, I, I really love uh, the way that you explain addiction, um, how it works and, and what it is. Um, mm -hmm. And I know there's a, a addiction you talk about the substance, but also the, the state that the way that our brain works yeah. kind of from a habitual perspective. Can you talk more about how do you understand addiction today um, and, yeah. and the troubles that it inflicts on people? So the way that I, the way that I truly believe in this, is this comes from um, a lot of great work. There's a, a British journalist named Johan Hari who wrote an amazing book called Lost Connections, where he went around the world and he interviewed and re uh, the, the greatest minds in mental health uh, and to come up with, you know, what is the truth? Like, what, we know the narrative, but what is the truth? Why is the narrative not work, right? And so we want to believe that addiction is the, the, the result of these chemical hooks, you know, that there's a chemical hook in Adderall that once I use it enough, once the hooks are in there deep enough, that's all it is, that I'm, I'm driven to use it because of the chemical addictive nature of the compounds in the substance. And that doesn't make sense if you look at, the, if you look at what's really happening. So what addiction really is, is a, a, a willingness to no longer be present in your life because your life has become too painful a place to be. And so, What I mean by that is there are, human beings have this amazing desire and, and wanting to bond. We have these meaningful bonds in our life that, that give us this incredible experience of being alive. We, have, we bond with ourselves. We bond with relationships to people. And we bond with our purpose and the places in the world around us. We, bond, we have a meaningful understanding of what our future looks like. And, and people can create a meaningful understanding of of our financial future. And when all these things make sense and we're bonded in a healthy and, and, and human way, then we're meaningfully connected to the experience of being alive. 
But when any of those bonds are severed or when multiple of those bonds are severed, that disconnection from those meaningful bonds is painful. And a lot of the times the signals that arise are depression and anxiety and they make sense. We want to believe that it is this, that depression and anxiety is mostly a chemical imbalance. And it just doesn't make sense that way, right? You know, the, there's a, um, in his book, I'll use the example in his book, he talks about something called the grief exception. The grief exception was this, was this uh, situation that happened when the DSM was being written, the, the, this is the diagnostic manual for how they determine mental illness, how you diagnose mental illness. And depression is diagnosed through nine criteria. There's nine uh, experiences that if someone experiences five or more of them, every 24 hours, they diagnose you as mentally ill. And some of the psychologists that were diagnosing people had a problem with this because they would come in and they say, listen, this person lost a loved one. Someone that they loved has died and they're grieving. And as a result of grieving, they're experiencing every single one of these criteria every 24 hours. I don't feel comfortable diagnosing them as mentally ill because their pain makes sense. And so they said, okay, fine. What we're going to do to, to remedy this is we're going to create the grief exception. The grief exception says that you can experience those feelings every day for a year. And then if, if it lasts longer than a year, then they can diagnose you as mentally ill and put you on medication. And this opened a can of worms because what it then said is there is a, a situation in life where the pain of sadness and anxiety makes sense. Well, if there's one situation in life where it's reasonable to feel these things, why isn't there another one? Why, if your husband or wife or partner leaves you after 40 years, is it not reasonable that you feel sad and anxious and, and tired and fatigued and all these things that, that go into depression? Why does that not make sense? Why, if you had a job that you loved and all of a sudden you lose your job and you end up under, living under a bridge, why does it not make sense in that situation? And this was causing a bit of problem with the, the, with, in the world of psychology. And so they decided they were going to fix it. They removed the grief exception. So now someone like a mother whose child dies in childbirth within 48 hours can be diagnosed as mentally ill. And the problem that I have with that is that it is making a statement to people in pain that your pain means nothing. And it also means that love means nothing because that's what it's really the greatest insult to. Johan talks about this. He says, if you're in your neighborhood and your neighbor dies and you never knew them, you might be sad, but you won't grieve them. You won't mourn them. But if they were a very close friend of yours, if you loved them, you're going to grieve and you're going to mourn them. And as a result of that mourning, you can be diagnosed with mentally Ill, as mentally ill and put on medication, which means that the love you felt for them and the loss of that love means nothing. And so take somebody who's disconnected from these meaningful bonds in life, who's severed from meaningful connection to themselves, to their purpose, to the world around them, to a future that doesn't make, they have a future that they can't make sense of. And in that state of disconnection, life is painful. And I was to offer them heroin. And for the first time ever, all that pain was gone in the most successful way they've ever experienced. If I was to continue to offer them heroin, there's a very high statistical likelihood that they will say yes, they will keep going for it. Now, if I were to take you, for example, who has a meaningful connection to themselves, to your world around you, to a purpose that's not only yours, but beyond yourself, 
you have a future that you're working towards that makes sense and it, and, it, and it seems attainable. You have bonds and connections with people that you want to show up and be present for. If I were to offer you heroin and you did it, and I was to come back the next day and ask you if you want to continue to doing it, to continue doing it, even though it was pleasurable, you have these bonds and connections that you want to show up and be present for. The statistical likelihood of you continuing to use heroin is much less, which begs the question, is it the chemical hooks or is it how we live with each other? Mm-hmm. And so that is, when I think about addiction, when I think about addiction recovery, we're treating people from a dependency model. We're asking them to accept that their problem is the substance that was the greatest solution that they've ever found. And in doing so, we're missing the real issue, which is how do we get these people meaningfully connected to living their lives with themselves and with other people in a society that makes sense to them? And that's a big question to ask because not everybody is like myself. They don't have the privilege of walking back home to a family that that welcomes them with open arms to being able to get back into work that makes sense and that's meaningful and it brings me joy and to be able to form a future, a financial future that makes sense and to have uh, you know, something to look forward to every day. I'm very privileged in that, in that fact. Someone who lives on the streets and is addicted to heroin, that's gonna be a much harder road for them. So I recognize it's not, as, it's not as black and white as that, but at the end of the day, it is this. This is what we're talking about. Yeah, it's uh, it's beautiful. I want to note for the listeners too that the Lost Connection book by Johan Hari is absolutely amazing. I highly suggested uh, Adam, you're the one who hooked me on it from the last time you spoke and it completely blew my mind and changed my perspective on so many things. And it's yeah. interesting because he talks about uh, how lack of connection and meaningful relationships and in, in people's lives today is a source of so many disorders either addiction or or depression or just sadness or lack of meaning in people's lives but then also on the flip side the hope is that through building meaningful connections there's so much hope in improving people's relationships and improving people's health mental emotional physical all of those aspects yeah and you know me saying this is i'm not anti-medication i just what i'm saying is that the problem isn't solved by changing the chemical balance of the mind of the brain you know Mm-hmm. You know, we, we want to believe that it's a serotonin imbalance. Like I said, well, if that's the case, then what you've gone through doesn't matter. And that's just not true because antidepressants can help. They help me, but I also was working towards reconnecting to those meaningful bonds in life to where they were no longer necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk about food addiction for, for a second? I know sure. we can talk about, you know, drugs, you can abstain from drugs, alcohol, you can abstain from alcohol, but food is something that we have to do pretty much every day. Yeah. So how do you think about food addiction today? The exact same way. It's the exact same thing. It's all about escaping some, it's about meeting some need, some physiological and psychological need that need that isn't being met. And because it's not being met, it's really painful. And I know how painful it is. And escaping that pain through food is, is, is as successful as escaping it through drugs. And, you know, we live in a modern environment that is going to offer you every opportunity to give you the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to what you put in your mouth. You know, I can go to McDonald's right now and spend a dollar and get more calories per bite than I can get from broccoli. And the more calories per bite, the more pleasure per bite, the more pleasure per bite, the greater the sensation of relief. And so it's real, but it's the same thing. You know, we want to believe that food is the issue. We want to believe that drugs are the issue when it comes to addiction. Mm 
these are the symptoms. This is what this is this is what arises and becomes a solution to someone who has is suffering from being disconnected from a meaningful life. And that disconnection can happen in many, many ways. It doesn't have to be this immensely traumatic experience. Trauma is trauma, you know? And, you know, it can occur over the course of time. And, you know, some people are more resilient than others. Some people work to build resilience over the course of time, but like, you know, it, we we're also raised in a, in a culture that just has no understanding of food anymore. You know, we're, we're, we're so nutritionally illiterate that we've got the people who are the lowest economic class overweight and dying from diabetes and the top 1% starving themselves to fit in. And, and you, you expect a culture that lives like that to have an understanding of how we're supposed to properly feed ourselves. We have, we have areas where people can't get healthy food where the, their only option for groceries is the gas station. And so, you know, to, to solve these problems is a, is a very big and, and huge ask. But at the end of the day, we can't blame food as the problem. Same way we can't blame drugs as the cause of addiction. You know, drugs, drugs are not what's causing addiction worldwide. Why people gravitate towards drugs and feel a need to continue using them is the problem. You know, like the war on drugs has been the, one of the most unsuccessful, dangerous things that has ever happened. The war on drugs is such a failure that they can't even keep the drugs out of prison. That's very true. So. Okay, well, I want to talk about your work now. Um, I know that uh, you're working on this amazing revolutionary study, which I don't think there is anything like this that, that currently exists or existed before, the, the infinite study where you're looking at the effects of uh, plant-based nutrition uh, in the addiction and in early recovery. Yes. Um, and I know you're also working with our uh, friend, Tara, who um, I had a privilege to meet several times, interview her for my podcast as well. So it's amazing. She's an amazing ray of sunshine. Um, but tell us about the study. Yeah. So when I got out of recovery, I, you know, was I lived for 10 months in sober living and that's where I adopted my plant-based diet. And I came out of it on zero medications, healthier than I've felt maybe ever. And I looked at the people that I went through recovery with and a large number of them had either gained weight, gone on more medications or on higher dosages of the medications that they came out of rehab on. And I was like, this is interesting. You know, we're in the same sober living. We're doing the same programs. I was on a plant-based diet and the other individuals weren't. What does the research say? Well, there isn't any. There's never been a single study ever done investigating the effect of nutrition, any nutrition on early addiction recovery outcomes, which is shocking because food is such a meaningful way in which we move through the world. And not only that, when you check into treatment, you're fed the exact same time, the exact same things every single day, three times a day as everybody else. It is a, it is a truly controlled environment. Like, why would we not investigate? We know, we know the statistics on what happens when you offer therapy modalities in, re in recovery. We know what happens when you offer exercise and mindfulness practice and yoga. We have data on it. We have zero data on nutrition. 
And it just blew my mind. Like, why does this not exist? We have, we have epidemiological studies. We have population studies. We can show you that populations that consume higher quantities of, of whole plants, fruits and vegetables have lower incidences of anxiety, stress, and depression, but that's correlation. It's not causation because it's not controlled. We don't know. And so I was like, this is ridiculous. Someone's got to do a study on this. And I was like, maybe I should do it. And uh, so I, I found a treatment center in Austin, Texas called Infinite Recovery that was willing to do it. That was the first step. Find somewhere that would be allowing this study to take place on its population, even though it's voluntary, right? We're, we don't, we don't, no one's forced to do this. I, I truly believe that when you're in recovery, the being in control, having a choice is a very powerful thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so after that, I was like, all right, now I got to find a university to get on board. And so I got in touch with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and, and was talking with Martin Tull, um, who's an amazing guy. He's amazing. And one, and he's like, oh, send me one page. Let's, let's find some universities. You know, we work with Harvard. We work with Yale. We work with, you know, uh, Loma Linda. And, you know, maybe we'll, we'll see what they have to say. And at the same time, Tara was starting her PhD work at Northern Arizona University. That, and, and I called her and I was like, hey, you know, Tara, I'm, the studies actually, she and I have been talking about it for a while. I was like, the study's actually going to happen. You know, I would really want you to be involved you know, what do you think? Like, do you think NAU would be interested? And she says, well, you know, I'm new on my work here. So I don't really get to bring studies to the, the PhD advisors and have them do it. But let me just talk to them and see. And they, she got back to me within 24 hours. They were already wanting to do a study like this, but hadn't been able to make it happen. And they're like, we, they, she's like, they absolutely want to do it. They want to do it exactly how you want to do it. And they want you to own the study rights. And so I was like, deal, let's do it. Let's do this. And so we had the this universe conspires. We had a meeting in Sedona uh, with the, a man named Jay Sutliff, who is our research advisor uh, with Tara Kemp, with some uh, other people who uh, helped us, you know, sort of, all right, how are we going to make this happen? And the first thing was, all right, we, you, we've got to fund it through a nonprofit. Adam, you've got to start a nonprofit and that way you can fund it through the nonprofit and then the nonprofit will own the study rights 100%. I was like, I had no intention of ever running a nonprofit, but okay, let's do that. So I spent the next six months founding my nonprofit, which is called Plant Based for Positive Change. And then we spent the better part of that entire year developing the study design. Like, what were we actually going to be looking for? What's our primary outcome? Now, normally when you do a research study, you take the gold standard of research that exists on the outcome that you're researching so that you can judge your results against theirs. Mm -hmm. Well, we are going to be the gold standard because there's, there's no data whatsoever. So it, it presented an amazing opportunity while it also was like, all right, so how do you define re addiction recovery outcomes? Like what, what are we looking for here? And we decided on two. We decided on resiliency, mm -hmm. which is an individual's ability to be confronted with a difficult situation and move through it with positive change. Self-compassion is our second one. And then we're also doing spiritual healing, anxiety, depression, uh, mania, obsessive compulsive drug use, eating disorder. So we have tons of secondary outcomes, but the, the primary outcome is resiliency. 
And we're, we have validated scales for measuring all of these. The, the resilience scale is called the Connor Davidson resilience scale, and it's used to measure the effectiveness of PTSD treatment. Um, and all right, so fine. Now I needed a, I, mean, I needed some MDs on the study. And I was at Plantstock. I was speaking at Plantstock that year. And that was where I first met Dean and Aisha Sherzai, who are the authors of the Alzheimer's Solution. They run the Loma Linda Brain Health uh, Program. They are the world's leading neuroscientists on cognitive longevity. And they're also two of the, in my list of top humans on the planet, <laughs> they're in the top three. Um, and, uh, and I walked up to Dean and Aisha and I said, you know, they had just presented. And I said, you know, have you ever come across any, in, in your research, have you ever come across any studies on nutrition and mental health, you know, controlled trials? And they said, you know, unfortunately, Adam, there's no research that shows any controlled trials being beneficial to mental health with nutrition because it doesn't exist. He's like, are you, are you going to do this study? Cause if you do it, you'll be the first to ever do it. And I said, yeah, I want to do it. And they're like, well, let's, you know, if you want us, we can consult with you. We can share our research with you. And we, and I said, fantastic. So on the third consult, I was like, you know what, man, just go big or go home. Right. And so I just straight up asked, I said, you know, I don't have any MDs attached to this study. Do you want to be the MDs on the study? And without hesitation, they agreed. And so they are MDs. And then we got Dr. Cusimano to do the microbiome study. And so looking at the research, what we're doing is we are Individuals who opt into the study are placed in the treatment group or the uh, control group. So the treatment group is a plant-based diet. The control group is the diet that's being served at the treatment center, which is an elevated Western diet. So removal of a lot of processed foods, but it's meat, eggs, and dairy. It's very Western. It's very paleo. And what we do is we measure various blood biomarkers. So your lipid panel, your A1C, your cholesterol, your triglycerides, um, blood pressure, um, you know, the full metabolic panel. And then we also added omega-3 and various vitamin levels. And we know from the research that exists what we can expect there. But we're also, this is also a microbiome study. So we're looking at changes in your gut microbiome. And for individuals on here who aren't familiar with the microbiome, what it is, is it is four to six pounds of bacteria that live in your gut that do processes for you that your body can't do for itself. One of which is the creation of, uh, of, of uh, mechanisms. So everyone thinks that, everyone hears this, 90% of your dopamine and 50% of your serotonin is produced in your gut. That is true. But those neurotransmitters produced in the gut don't cross the blood brain barrier. They never make it to your brain. However, there are things created in your gut microbiome that do cross the blood, blood brain barrier that are nece they're necessary for the formation of neurotransmitters. So 100% your gut health is related to your mental and emotional health. And to put into context how impactful the gut microbiome is, if I was to take you, Christina, and count the number of cells that make up Christina, mm -hmm. they would number 10 trillion. There's 10 trillion Christina cells. If I was to count the number of cells that make up your gut microbiome, it's 300 trillion. So if I was to take all of the cells that exist within you, you are less than 10% human, which shows you how impactful the gut microbiome is over everything. And so we're looking at changes in blood biomarkers. We're looking at changes in the gut microbiome and how those changes relate to the changes in the validated scales of measuring resiliency, self-compassion, spiritual healing, anxiety, depression, 
mania, all the four noted, you know, validated mm -hmm. scales of emotional and psychological health so that we can see, right, what does food have to do in offering an individual the opportunity to strengthen the foundation for which they recover upon. It's a 10 week intervention. So of course we're not looking at sobriety as an outcome. And like I said, I'm not, you know, I don't believe that sobriety is found in food alone. I don't, you know, it's a multifaceted thing. It's, it's about, I think sobriety is a symptom of becoming whole. Um, mm -hmm. And so, but what we want to know is what, how can we use food to either help or hinder an individual's ability to strengthen the recovery in the early addiction recovery process because it doesn't exist. And so that's what we're looking at. And I think it's fascinating. We've been running the study now for about 11 months. And here's the thing, everyone who enters the study is either overfed and undernourished or underfed and undernourished. So mostly everybody is gonna see positive outcomes across the board. But what we're really excited about, and I, I can't give specific numbers is that in every single measurable outcome, the plant-based group is doing better. And so, and, and then the stories of the people that are going through it are phenomenal. The way that they feel, and I think this is really important because we are storied creatures, right? I can give you data all day long, but a story is gonna move you more than any data on the planet, right? And so we hear people saying, you know, this one just feels different. Mm. There, there's a sense of calm. There's, you know, this isn't my first or my second or my third time doing it, but this one feels different. And we get to take these stories and connect it to quantitative data. So we take the qualitative stories and quantitative data and then you get a whole picture. And it's just, it's so fascinating. And I'm so proud to be able to do this. And I'm proud to be, you know, I don't think this is going to solve the problem. I think that what we have here is we have, we know what we are facing. We're facing a, a recovery program that is widely accepted as the only thing out there. And it has a recidivism rate of 70%, meaning that 70% of people who check into treatment today will be back into treatment within a year. And I don't think it's because the system is broken. I think it's because it's incomplete. And what I want this research to do is to just add another piece to missing piece to the puzzle. I think that the, there's a bigger piece of the puzzle that's missing. And that's, and that's how we, how we view addiction in this country, the way that we talk about it, the way that we criminalize users because we criminalize substances. Um, and so there's a lot that goes into it to creating like the ultimate solution, but I'm proud to be bringing a piece to this puzzle. And I'm, I'm so excited for you. I'm like ready to jump out of my clothes and jump through the ceiling. This is yeah. so cool. I cannot wait to see the results. I cannot wait to see like the articles. And are you making a documentary? By any no, I'm writing a that? book. You're writing, writing a book. book. Yes. Oh my God. So, this this is gonna be amazing. Yeah. Just I'm I'm so proud of you for doing that. And Thank I just you. so respect all of the effort that you've been putting into it. And then just the courage that you had to like just design a study. Just take, yeah. I don't know, like it's big. It was, you know, like I said, you know, I, I I don't play small on certain things and I just went for it. But by the way, you know, I want people to know that people who listen, you can, you can be a part of it. You can contribute. We have a GoFundMe to support. So we pay for 90% of the study, but we we're still raising money for the microbiome sequencing. Mm -hmm. Microbiome sequencing is pretty expensive. And so I have a GoFundMe campaign and you can link it in your show notes. If people want to donate, think about it. Like if you have a thousand, if you have a, if you have a thousand followers, if you have, I don't know how many average downloads you get, but you know, like if everyone was willing to donate $10, that's going to make a huge dent. I mean, like people think you got to be able to, you got to donate a thousand dollars to make a difference. No, you can donate five, $10.
$2, I don't care. Like you're going to make a difference. You're going to help bring this study to the world. This is amazing. I'll definitely include the link in the show notes for you guys. So please make sure to, if you want to do a small action that goes a long way, please consider donating. It's, it's an amazing cause. And I know, I think a lot of times, I know I definitely feel that way, um, especially with like awareness around mental health or the, the day where, you know, a lot of people take the, the, the step that we don't want them to. It's like, what, what, how can I possibly help? How can I possibly help? And this is a small thing that's so easy to do that you can make to, to change the, the, the way the future hopefully works. Adam, I know that I, I will be respectful of your time. You have just a few minutes left. Is there anything else that we haven't spoke about that you want to share some parting words maybe before we close up? Uh, yeah. So my very, very close friend, David Clark passed away this year. Um, and I, I'm not sure if you're, if you are familiar with David Clark, I'm sure you are what a gift he was. Um, unfortunately he died complications to surgery. He was, I think he was 15 years sober. He and I met on a run that we did across. We ran, I was part of a team that ran from LA to Washington, DC called the icebreaker run. And David became a very dear friend of mine. Um, and he wrote a book called out there, a story of ultra recovery. It's a beautiful book. But so every time I, I have an opportunity to speak, I, I, I like to leave people with a bit of David and, and I'm gonna, this is going to be tough for me to get out. Um, cause he was a very dear friend of mine. Um, David used to say, uh, we've all heard the advice that if you want to be happy, you got to live like it's the last day of your life. And David said that the, that there's a wrong, there's a flaw in that thinking. He said, if you really want to be happy, you got to treat people like they're living the last day of theirs. And so, uh, if, if, uh, if you want to spend one day and just honor David Clark, just go out there and everyone you meet, whether they're angry, whether they're sad, whether they're happy, whether they're, no matter what they're going through, just allow it and love them anyways. This is amazing. I really appreciate it. Adam, thank you so much for all you do. I'm so happy that you're here today, that you made it through, through all of the difficulties. I'm so thankful for your, all of your experiences and all of your strength that you get to share with the world today. And thank you for all of your positive outlook and, and the, just an amazing philosophy that you share with the world. I cannot wait to share this episode with the world and I cannot wait to, to hear and see and, and read the results of your study and your future work. Well, my pleasure. And uh, it's, it's always great connecting with you. And so, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm honored to, to, to not only get to be on the show, but to be on it twice. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you.